Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, welcome back, everyone. On this episode of Conversation with Yankees great Paul O'Neill, the Warrior. Paul has teamed up with my friend Jack Curry, the great writer and Yes Network analyst on a new book titled Swing and a Hit, Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught Me. It comes out May 24th from Grand Central Publishing. The book is a journey through Paul's life in the game and his perspective on hitting. In case you forgot what Paul's resume looks like, well, it only features 17 Major League seasons, 2,100 hits, over 750 of them for extra bases, five All-Star teams, five World Series championships, and a batting title. All of that and his reputation as a gamer and a winner, always in search of perfection, earned him the nickname The Warrior from the late George Steinbrenner, and O'Neill's number 21 jersey will officially be retired by the Yankees later this summer. In the book, O'Neill looks back at his career with plenty of fun stories about teammates like Don Mattingly, Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, and many more, and there are some very candid parts like how he was losing focus as a player in his final season in 2001, or how he used to deal with the angel and devil on each shoulder and try to win the battle inside his own mind to convince himself he was a good hitter each and every day. For a peek inside this new book, Swing the Hit, co-written with Jack Curry, here's my conversation with Paul O'Neill. Paul, the first thing I really want to ask you is um, you tell a lot of great stories about your playing days. And I remember like when I covered you late in your career as a player, you were always a little reluctant to talk about yourself and your stories. So what made you want to bring them all out in book form here? Well, it's much easier when you're out of the game because basically that's what you have are all the memories and, you know, the people that uh, were associated with your career. And uh, again, why you're going through the playing part of it, uh, you know, you're so focused on what you're doing. And once you step away from the game, then it's much easier to talk about the people. And, you know, that, that, that's what baseball is. If you really look at it, every generation is brought together by, uh, you know, stories of the old generations. And they kind of bring this game to life over a course of hundreds of years. So uh, that's uh, when, you know, Jack and I started talking, we started getting into more of stories and obviously, you know, my theory of hitting and things like that, but it's not a one size fits all. I mean, this is what I did. But again, uh, I think as you read through this book, you're going to find out more. It's just about the people that, um, you know, I had the pleasure to be around. Uh, You mentioned your style of hitting, your theory of hitting. And 
I laugh because, you know, when I hear people who watch the games or watch your broadcasts and listen to your commentary, there's so many people come up to me and say, oh, Paul should be the hitting coach. Paul should be a hitting coach. <laughs> and I, I, I get that's the reaction I have. I kind of laugh and I know why, but I want you, <laughs> you to explain how tough it is, how hard it is, and maybe some of the reasons that you would or wouldn't be a good hitting coach. Well, obviously, today's game has changed a lot and, and what uh, players are expected to do. And, you know, there's certain terms, launch angles and things like that, that that weren't even in the game when I played. But, uh, you know, the game of baseball has always been about good at bats, score runs, get good pitching. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of times when, uh, you know, you're working with young hitters or even talking about young hitters, they look at you like, well, that's the way the game was. And, yeah. you know, the game is this way. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I still marvel at, at some of the hitters today. When I watch Aaron Judge and, and Stanton, you know, hit these mammoth home runs, I mean, you, you just, you're sit and, and you're in awe. So uh, it's not that I don't like the game. I just see the differences in it and uh, how it, you know, it kind of come ebbs and flows, goes this way, that way. Will it get back to, Guys, uh, you know, trying to hit 300 as a meaningful average. I hope so, because that to me um, shows the true art of hitting. Um, you tell some really good stories in the book about, as you said, the people. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a couple of these names to you. And I kind of want you to talk me through what kind of what they meant, what memories come back to you, something you might have mentioned in the book and, and maybe some others. Uh, listen, you broke into the big leagues and Pete Rose is your manager and he's about to become the all-time hits leader. Uh, you know, growing up in Cincinnati, I mean, you know, Pete Rose, right? Um, but you still remember some of the conversations he had with you earlier in your career that kind of stuck with you all those years, kind of helped you kind of relax and, and, and bring the best out of yourself as a player. What were some of those things that he mentioned to you just about hitting, about playing, about being ready, things like that? Well, you know what, when I go back and, you know, growing up in Ohio and, and believe me, watching the big, big red machine and dreaming about playing in the major leagues and then getting to put on that uniform and getting called up right before Pete Rose's hit. And, you know, to me as a young player, you kind of sit back and you just listen. And, you know, I, I can remember conversations with Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Davey Concepcion, these guys that I kind of idolized growing up. And uh, a lot can be learned uh, in this game, whether it's from, you know, 100 years back, 50 years back now. I mean, the game does change in certain ways, but the mental part of it and, and how to go about it. And I remember one time being in a slump. I was off to a good start, and Pete Rose said, don't get in the way of yourself. And it was just overthinking. And little things like that stuck with you because, you know, guys that have been through it, can explain it a lot better than a young player that's just going through it for the first time. When, when you came to the Yankees, you got to sit and talk shop with some really good hitters. And I found this part interesting too. When you talk about, you know, Don Mattingly and Wade Boggs are there. And I think a lot of us, you know, whether it's people in the media or fans, when we think about the time you guys spend together in the clubhouse or on the batting cage and buses and planes, we think about you guys talking about hitting and, and, and the game. And I think there is some of that, but conversations with Mattingly and Boggs, two amazing hitters in that era, what were some of the things that you guys used to kind of banter back and forth, whether it was things that you agreed upon, didn't agree upon, style, things like that? What were some of those conversations? Well, you know, when coming over from Cincinnati, there was kind of an adjustment going on with Lou Pinella wanting me to be a home run hitter and pull everything. And it was such a relief when I got to New York because, you know, here's Don Mattingly, who at that time was the face of the Yankees, one of the best hitters in the American League. And Wade Boggs had won numerous batting titles. 
and just how they use the whole field. So all of a sudden, it's just like this light bulb went off. And it's like, wow, I am I am able to hit the way I want to hit here. I can hit balls and line drives to left field, to right field, and be successful. And, you know, I'll never forget walking in. And Don Manningly was probably the first guy that I sat down and talked to, uh, became close friends immediately. And always from afar, uh, watching Wade Boggs never give away a bat, uh, you know, even if, you know, if you're overmatched by a pitcher, somehow you battle, somehow you give yourself a chance. But uh, as far as differences, you know, Wade Boggs was always the other way. I would pull the baseball at times. Don Manley was a guy that would guess and look for certain pitches on certain counts, and he was very good at it. I wasn't able to do that. If I looked inside, they could throw it behind me. Well, that was inside. I'd swing at it. So I was focused on, you know, what I tried to do best. And, and like I said, this book is, is is my version of hitting. It doesn't fit everybody's version. And that's the cool thing. But, you know, as both Boggs and, and Manning, you brought up, they were left-handed hitters. So a lot of times in the locker room, we're talking about facing guys out of the bullpen, the same type of lefties, how they pitch you, how they're going to pitch me. And it's just a, a way of uh, kind of preparing yourself before you get up for your bat. You had some interesting thoughts in here too about about Derek Jeter and how you know you talked hitting about him. And you guys seem to approach things two very different ways. I mean, Jeter seems very minimal. Like I remember, I don't know if he ever really kept it this simple, but he would talk to us about how he wouldn't even like think about or know who's pitching until he walked into the ballpark that day, looked at the lineup cards, and okay, here's who's pitching. He keeps it very simple, his approach and everything like that. Um, how did you guys connect over hitting? And you mentioned, you know, this Jeter is obviously right-handed, you're left-handed. So what were some of the things you guys connected with about hitting? And did you kind of, you know, as you were a veteran, did you kind of look at that kid and say, man, it's, it's harder than this kid. You know what? As soon as he came up, you are, you're right. You're like, here's this high touted rookie, you know, and there's been so many that, you know, don't become who they're supposed to become, but it didn't take long for Jeter. I remember him coming up in 95 as a call up and sitting on the bench in the, in the playoffs, not being active. But then in 96, you know, from day one, opening day, I mean, it was a phenomenal game, a phenomenal series. And all of a sudden, you know, that smile and that charm of Derek Jeter uh, was overwhelming in New York. And it's just like, I was so fortunate to come to the Yankees at a time where the team was starting to turn around. And then a few years later, you know, you add Derek Jeter and Posada and Mariano and Pettit from the organization, and it just set up this perfect team. And then now you look back, you realize how special that time was uh, winning those championships. Was was Jeter, did, did you think, oh, listen, the guy's got, you know, all those hits and he's in the Hall of Fame. But do you think Jeter gets enough credit for being a hitter, like a good hitter? Because I always look at him and, and like his approach um, and, and the, like the way he talked about it made it sound simple. Like he wasn't putting a lot of thought into it, but you know, when you watch him every day, you understand like there's, there is a lot of deep thought in there. It just, uh, it just kind of comes out differently. Yeah. I mean, I, I think his version of the right side to the left side, it was very much the same as mine. We both went to the plate looking for a ball out over the plate and looking to drive it the other way. And, uh, you know, I, I can honestly say that, I agree with that 100% because if I'm thinking about what the pitcher is trying to do to me, then already the pitcher's in my head and I'm changing what I do. And, you know, in sports and especially in professional sports, I mean, you do certain things well 
And you, you have to do those constantly to be successful. So for me to try to change within at bats or look inside or outside, that was not my thing in hitting. I looked for mistakes out over the plate. And believe it or not, even at the major league level, you can count on you know, your hands and toes on how many at bats in your whole career where you did not see a good pitch to hit. You might foul it off and then he makes a nasty pitch. But there are very few at bats where you went up there and didn't have a chance to get a hit. You, um, you talk in really good detail and, and, you know, this book is written with Jack Curry. So he helps you describe the detail as well about the phone call you got from Ted Williams. And listen, I know that, you know, you don't have a recording of this. I know you weren't sitting there scribbling down everything he said, um, but it's pretty clear. You remember a lot of the things that Ted Williams told you in a phone conversation. Uh, how long were you guys talking and how, how vivid are those memories to you of what you, what he told well, you? Well, again, those are the certain things that happen in life. And then we talked about, you know, guys, generation to generation. I mean, I, I just knew Ted Williams as his iconic hitter. And when I get a phone call on a cell phone, uh, back then it was the old flip phone. You open it up and say, hey, I, hey Paul, this is Ted Williams. And you think, oh, yeah, right. Okay, who's, who's really is this? And then as you talk longer and longer, you realize, my goodness, this really is Ted Williams. And, you know, does he even know who I am, or who I play for? You know, that's what kind of blew me away. But then he was going through, my sister was writing a book at the time, and he um, uh, was part of it. And, and that's how that phone call kind of got taken, you know, became. And, and he, you know, I remember him saying to me, I hear you're not know, swinging the bat well. And this was in spring training. And he said, I bet you're not hitting the ball the other way. And to me, that just is like this guy, the one of the best hitters, if not the best hitter in baseball, knows the way I hit. And that was unbelievably interesting to me. Uh, we talked for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And, uh, you know, what a pleasure. And it just like I said, to, to have that memory, I mean, uh, those things don't go away. It's kind of like, you know, sitting on the couch in the locker room talking to Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford. It's just the stories that go along with these guys. Again, that's what baseball is, is the names and the history and the tradition. And uh, that's what uh, I hope comes out in this book. The more we talked, uh, the more it became just, uh, you know, stories. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? Bow. 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I um, When you mentioned Yogi, it, it just made me laugh a little bit because I, I always loved watching people's reactions in the Yankees clubhouse when Yogi walked through, right? And I'm wondering if you had the same reaction to him. Um, you know, he, he was by this time, you know, he's an old man he's in his seventies and his eighties He's walking, he's, he's doddering across the clubhouse and I watch players look at him, young players look at him. And then I'd look at them and I go, one of the greatest hitters of all time, man. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. kind of, they're like, I know, look at the little body, look at that little man. And this is one of the greatest yeah. hitters and power hitters. I mean, you know, did that same thought ever across your mind as you were talking to Yogi? Well, I think once you get past the all of, wow, this is Yogi Berra, you, you realize just how genuine he is and his stories were, I mean, second to none. I mean, they're, 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 they just go on forever, but to sit, like I said, on the couch with him, in Robbie Kakuza's office and just talk about a lifetime of everything uh, from war to baseball to world championships to Jackie Robinson was out at the plate. I mean, these things just, they don't leave your memory. And, and it's just like, I, I was so fortunate to come to the Yankees and be able to have these times uh, with these great players. And um, I won't forget them. You, um, towards the end, you, you tell a story about uh, just going to see Roberto Clemente play. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your family and what that meant. <laughs> and um, I mean, I guess there's some coincidence in the fact that you were 21. Um, but, you know, Roberto Clemente, uh, as a kid growing up, you're, you know, your dad specifically wanted you to see Roberto Clemente and capture mm-hmm. a memory of you at a stadium with Roberto Clemente. Yeah, I mean, and in that time, uh, we lived in Columbus, Ohio. We all jumped in the station wagon. It was like our summer vacation to go to a major league baseball game at Crosley Field. And uh, it just so happened that they were playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. Roberto Clemente was that name that everybody knew because of his greatness. And my father, in the upper deck, of course, because we didn't have great (laughs) (laughs) takes a picture. And ironically, Roberto Clemente is in the background. Intentional in my father's eyes, I'm sure. Me, I was just happy to be at the ballpark. And, um, you know, the first time I was issued 21 was in Cincinnati and then the same in New York. I was very fortunate to wear that number my whole career. Uh, that's the first thing I thought when I was issued that number, number 21. It's like, wow, that's Roberto Clemente's number. And that, to me, uh, made it special because, you know, numbers as players – you know, if you play with 10 organizations and you have 10 different numbers, you know, some of your numbers don't mean as much. But when you wear your number your whole career and all of a sudden you start to think of some of the players that wore that number before you, it means something. And uh, that, to me, was the first thing I thought when uh, I put on my number 21. You are um, you're self-deprecating enough in this book. And I think on the air, people you know get that, too. 
to uh, you know to share some of the stories people say about some of your other little quirks here and there, whether it's <laughs> kicking the ball or this and that. But the thing I find funny is like when you're you know you're out in the outfield practicing your swing, and everybody notices it. Like like did you like how did how did you become aware that people were actually watching you do this, even though in your mind this is just you in a moment on the field by yourself. Well, that's when I, you know, you know, in right field, uh, it goes back to little league when, you know, you're in right field and they always stuck the scrub out in right field. <laughs> you watch the butterflies fly by, and, you know, you weren't really part of the game, but you know, at the major league level, you do have time in between pitches and your mind kind of wonders. And, and, you know, if you had a bad at bat or if you're coming up to an at bat, you know, you start to visualize how, what's going to happen. And, and I, I just, I used to use that time. And then, uh, you know, David Cohn said many times on the air, he'd look out there and didn't know if I was ready for the pit because I was practicing my swing. And Brian Bowringer, who was a, a, a bullpen guy, came up to me one day and said, I, I got a question for you. And I said, OK, what is it, Bo? And, you know, Bo's out there a little bit. <laughs> I see you working on your swing in the outfield, but I never see you working on your fielding on the on deck circle. So he was very confused about that. But uh, you know what? Again, uh, these things only happen when you play a long time in the major leagues and you're, you know, you're introduced to so many different players from so many different backgrounds. And that's, uh, you know, baseball is a funny thing. You're with people every single day of your life. And then at the end of the year, you know, you say goodbye in the parking lot and you don't see them again till spring training. And then when you do see them again, it's like you never missed a beat. So kind of a kind of a strange thing. Paul, did anybody ever try to reel you in emotionally when like when you had one of your famous tantrums that we get to see replays of all the time? Uh, did, did was there a coach, a manager, uh, anybody in your life that you know, maybe didn't laugh at it the way the rest of us did and took it the way that it did and maybe thought it was maybe detrimental to you and your future mental health, playing career, anything like that. Did anybody ever try to tell you, kid, you don't have to do that. You don't, you don't have to take out your frustrations like this all the time. Yeah. I mean, it just, I think you're wired that way. I, I mean, that's just the way I showed my emotion. Uh, I, and, you know, you go back to the people that helped. I remember Pete Rose saying, you know, you only have so much mental energy and if you spend it all every single at bat by the end of the game you're exhausted so that stuck with me mm -hmm. and then I also remember a meeting that I had in Joe Torrey's office with Bob Watson and Joe Torrey understood because he was a great player also yeah. uh, you know the frustrations of not playing well and, and making big outs and things like that and he said you know I have no problem with what you're doing but I'll tell you one thing if you ever hurt yourself <laughs> we will have another talk. Yeah. And he was joking one sense, but he was very serious in another. And Bob Watson was sitting right there agreeing with him. And I understood that, you know, it, it, it made me feel good that they understood where I was from, but also, you know, kind of like you're important to this team. We don't need you hurt. And, you know, that's also a pat on the back. And again, that's the type of things that Joe Torrey would do. There was a two-sided sword to every conversation. And it always helped you. And I, that's why I thought he was a genius and a manager. Paul, the, the one thing that really, that really kind of stuck out to me towards the end of this is when you talk about your last season, 2001. That's the first season that I started covering uh, every day on the Yankees, the season I knew you. And one of the things that you wrote about here really jumped out at me. And you talked about not necessarily how your body felt 
or how, you know, how your body was telling you it was time to retire. It was almost like your mind was telling you it was time to retire mm-hmm. because you talked about losing focus. And that's something that I think, I don't think a lot of players would admit that. I don't think a lot of players would know how to handle that because it's simply not how you do your job. Um, what do you remember now about that season and and how and why that was happening and, and what you know, looking back on it, what do you think about the idea that you know, it's almost unthinkable for a professional athlete to talk about losing focus? Well, you know, that again comes with, uh, I, I think, that long period of time of, you know, prolonged seasons, huge games, playoff games, World Series games. And, and also, you know, going into that year, uh, we had talked uh, as a family pretty much that this was going to be it. So it was pretty much uh, in my mind that that was going to be it. But th- there were times where you would have a game and all of a sudden, it's not like you didn't try. You'd go to the plate and, and you'd make an out and you just realize that, you know, my, my concentration's kind of here and there. And, and I talked to Joe Torrey about it and he said, you know, as you get older, it's much harder. It seems so easy for four or five times a night to put total concentration uh, on a bat, on every pitch. I mean, that's that's just a given. That's what you do. But at, at that year, I can remember times just so frustrated at the end of the day where, you know, a couple of, ga- a couple of bats just got away from you. And, and I didn't know what it was. It was frustrating. I know that. But, uh, you know, I look back. I don't have any regrets about when I retired or how I retired. Uh, the New York fans were amazing to me. Those teams were amazing. So uh, I feel fortunate. And, um, you know, a lot of people said you could have played a couple more years. Well, if that would have happened, great. But like I said, I have no regrets on the way things ended. I am. Um, the, the other thing that I really took out of reading this was like, I just enjoyed you talking about your process like you talked about. And, you know, it seems that there, there is a certain inner confidence and arrogance that every professional athlete um, has to have. And the ones who have long, successful careers like you all seem to have them. But as, as we've gotten to know you and talk to you and, and how you lay it out in the book, it's almost as if you had to go through a daily battle of convincing yourself that I'm a good hitter. And that seems to go against what so many other really good players bring to their craft every day. Mm -hmm. Like you go out to the field knowing that you're good at it and let that come out. It was almost, Paulie, as if you were talking yourself into that every day or trying to talk yourself into that every day. Do I have that right? Was that kind of a battle for you? Uh, it's a great pickup because that that was uh, my mindset. I never could understand. And like Bertie Williams would have an 0 for 5 and lose the game and walk out with a smile because he was confident enough that tomorrow was going to be a better day. I was the type of guy that's like, wow, if I was this bad today, what am I going to do tomorrow? You know, it just, uh, uh, again, I was never confident enough to. Uh, to just show up and expect to do well. It was all a preparation. It was all a, a, a just a, you know, all or nothing. I just knew every day, you know, you on the way home, you were either going to be happy or you were going to be tortured mentally about, you know, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And it just, uh, that's the way my career went. But, you know, as I went on with the Yankees, uh, you know, you, you do get, rem- uh, you know, you start remembering, you know, where your numbers are year after year. And that somewhat helps, but there's still that time. It's like, you know, I have, now I have those to live up to. Is this next at bat not going to allow me to do that? And I always felt like one at bat led to another one game led to another. And that's why I never, 
I had never had problems, you know, talking to the press about a bad game because, you know, that's, that's your job as a player explain, you know, I, I flat out, I had a horrible bat. We lost, uh, you know, I, I try better tomorrow where if I had a great game, I didn't want to talk about it because then I felt like I had something to live up to again tomorrow. And it was just, you know, again, uh, confidence is, a, is up and down and baseball can take it from you. And believe me, you have to fight to keep it. And uh, I always felt like uh, the harder I worked, you know, kind of the more I deserved out there. And believe me, I, I looked across that field many times at players. It's it, flat out, you're better than I am. So, you know, you always have to work to try to keep up to that. How, how did you deal with it in the moment? Like, who did you talk to and how did you, like, how did you go about trying to convince yourself? Like, like I said, I mean, listen, everybody has to build that confidence. And if you don't have it built in, you're, you're trying to figure out how to get it inside of you. What, what was that battle? How did you, how did you do it? Well, you know, I, that takes me back to, again to my Cincinnati days where Lee May, he was our first base coach. And he used to joke and he would, he would call me ordeal, not O'Neill, ordeal. <laughs> he said, you know what I see in your life? He said, you've got one guy on your shoulder that believes and you got this other guy on your shoulder that tells you, you can't do it. And you've got to knock him off your shoulder. And I always remember that it was a joke, but boy, that's kind of the way it is. But you know, as you go on, I mean, you learn certain guys that are kind of wired the same way you are. Donnie's uh, Manning lives that way. Tino a little bit later, you know, we would have conversations about pitching and, and, and about hitting and, and try to pick each other up because we took the game kind of internally the same way. And those are kind of the players that you gravitate towards because you have a lot of conversations that uh, pretty much help each other. I, um, I can't imagine you ever went to the ballpark with less confidence than 1998. And as we're watching a Yankees team get off to a good start, we are a long way away from knowing if they're, if it's worth even having this conversation now and comparing, but just from the idea of getting off to a great start and going to the park and knowing things are going well for you as a team, when you watch this Yankees team now, anything is anything set you off and remind you a little bit about what you guys went through in 98. Well, you know, they're in, a, in, in that thing. I always thought that you get in habits, you get in habits of winning, you get in habits of losing. And, and right now this team is fun to watch. They are a team. I mean, you've got Aaron Judge and Stanton, the LeMay, the great hitters, but you also have guys that are, that are pitching in. You've got uh, kind of Falefa, you got Rizzo. I mean, their defense is so much better. Uh, their pitching has been good. This winning, it always comes down to injuries. And, you know, in 1998, you talked about it. We were healthy. Everybody had good years. We were healthy and that's yet to be seen. But, you know, uh, again, uh, this team has been so much fun to watch. And, you know, one of the major stories is going to unfold again tonight with Nestor Cortez pitching. I mean, these are just great stories that you root for. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you bring people in and, and they fit in perfectly. They're off to a great start. Uh, I don't see it changing because uh, just so many they've won in so many ways. Obviously, home runs are a huge part of their offense, uh, the way they score runs. But that's kind of the way this team is built. But you also have added some other guys that can score runs the other way. And to me, that's that's exciting because uh, there are nights, you know, where you're not going to hit two or three home runs. And there are nights where Aaron Judge isn't going to have his best night. And if you can figure out ways to win uh, on those nights, and the Yankees bullpen can get in there with a lead at some point. 
I mean, this is a very good baseball team. You know, just because you mentioned the bullpen, like I think there's almost a change in mindset. Like people have to understand that this game is a lot different than it was maybe even just 10, 10, 12 years ago, where it's okay if the Yankees get into their bullpen in the fifth inning. And it's mm-hmm. almost by design that they want to do that. It used to be, um, let's get into a team's bullpen. You know, the Yankees are fine if a starter only gives them four innings some nights, if, they've, if they're rested enough, because they have the arms coming out of there that you didn't used to have in the bullpen. And I think we almost, Paul, everybody has to kind of unlearn what they've learned about the game and about how, how you attack it from a pitching standpoint, because that can be by design these days mm-hmm. that you can go out there and, and, and throw your best relievers out there for five innings a night. Yeah, I mean, there's such a, a difference in the game now with the elite teams. I mean, their bullpens are, I mean, just power arms, guys that can get outs. And uh, I truly believe 1990, the team I was on with the Cincinnati Reds, who we, we won the World Series. We were, you know, supposed to get killed by the Oakland A's. But it kind of changed the way baseball was. And teams emulate the way other teams win. And if you remember 1990, we had the nasty boys, which was Rob Dibble, Norm Charlton, and Randy Myers. And when we got to the playoffs, that's the way we played the game. You'd get through five innings and hand it to those three guys. And all of a sudden we were beating teams on paper that were better than we were. And uh, I thought it was a a really game-changing kind of uh, thing that happened then. And now you see uh, you haven't seen a team win the World Series. I, I can't even go far back without a great bullpen. Yeah. And, and you know, there used to be bullpens. You'd have a great closer, but you know, the middle bullpen wasn't that the bridge. And now you've got bridge guys that are as good as your starters, and then you get to closers. So uh, I think it's much tough, tougher era to hit because you're hitting off against so many power pitchers, so many different pitches. But uh, that's the way the game has gone. Will it stay that way forever? I don't know, because it's very hard uh, for these guys to take the ball that many times in a year when you're going to the bullpen that much. Paul, I got one last one for you. It's just because I get reminded of it this week uh, when, you know, every May 17th, they show us the highlights of, of David Wells' perfect game. And uh, you catch the final out. And I don't, I don't know about you, the same thought runs through my mind every time I see it. It's a perfect game. And I watch you go up there with one hand with the one glass. I know you caught every ball that way, but I'm sitting there screaming in my head. I'm going two hands, Polly, two hands. Has anybody, has anybody else ever brought that up to you? Yeah. A lot of people say, well, you're nervous on that play. But, you know, that, um, soon, you're nervous before the pitch because you know what's at stake. And then soon as the ball's popped up, you know, uh, this is an easy play. This isn't a sinking line drive. This isn't going to be a diving play. I've got plenty of time to get there. I'm not going to lose it in the sun. This is it. He's just done it. Um, You know, would I want that play now that I haven't put on a glove in a while? Probably not. But, you know, in the middle of your uh, career, that's an easy play. And it was a fun day. I still remember coming in that day telling Boomer Wells, congratulations. I said, I made a mistake. I threw the ball in the stands. And oh, he, wow. he, he, I had him for a couple seconds. And then I <laughs> <handed him> the <laughs> That's great. That's great. My thanks again to Paul O'Neill. You can find Swing and a Hit May 24th everywhere you get books. It's from Grand Central Publishing and is co-written with Jack Curry, who has previously authored bestsellers with Derek Jeter and David Cohn. Certainly worth putting on your summer reading list and your Father's Day gift list as well. Hint, hint, it's right around the corner too. 
If you're new here, check out the archive at Odyssey, at Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also check out our Baseball Insiders and one of our newest shows, The Bomber Brothers, featuring Ryan and Sean Chichester's Yankees podcast. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Baseball season is heating up. Odyssey has you covered with the most entertaining coverage of your team. Stay locked in and in the know with the local voices you trust as they bring you unfiltered takes, recap games, react to the latest team news, and talk to callers. Listen to your favorite shows for free on the Odyssey app, odyssey.com, your smart speaker, or in the car with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. 